As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The U, the new Miami, the new Miami, the new Miami, surge, surge, the new Miami, the new Miami, the new Miami, surge, surge. It's a cane thing when we walk through, with the you ain't no bark dude, straight dog when we bring the fight, ain't scared of no bright lights. It's Welcome back to the Wide Right Podcast. Miami Hurricanes beat writer Manny Navarro here with a gentleman's Jack Whiskey in hand on the rocks. Got Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day Podcast with me again. It's been a couple weeks. Carlos, thank you for coming back on. I appreciate it. No problem. If I knew it was going to be a boozy pod, a happy hour to brought my own whiskey, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the midway point uh, of the season. Wide Ride, of course, brought to you by DirecTV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. Um so obviously, I, I was at uh, I was in Chapel Hill for the well, heartbreaking loss, right? I guess we can call it that. It was 45-42. Miami had a chance there at the end uh, to come back and even their record. And unfortunately, Tyler Van Dyke and his heroics fell short. He got the pass deflected at the line of scrimmage. It was intercepted. So now Miami is at the midway point of the season, two and four. Uh, I'm been actually working on a couple of different stories. One of them is just assessing Miami at the midseason, which you're going to help me do that tonight, uh, Carlos. You're going to help me write that story. And then one that I did earlier today or over the last two days, which is ranking the Sunshine State seven, right? All seven FBS teams. Um, I've ranked them. I've done all the research statistics. Where would you rank Miami among the oh, seven? Jesus. FBS schools in the state right now because here's here's the reason why it's important okay I'm going to give you the important reason this is the first time since 2011 that there is not a single football team in the Sunshine State ranked in the AP top 25 the first time Florida was in the also receiving votes category with seven votes in the Associated Press poll by the way since 1982 there's only been seven weeks where there hasn't been a team from Florida ranked in the AP uh, top 25 and six of them were in 2011. So that means since then till now, <laughs> there's always somebody from the state representing. Uh, the only football bright spot in the entire state is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I never thought I'd say that in my life. Thank God for Tom Brady. Who would have imagined yeah. us saying that, but Man. thank God for Tom Brady. Um, 
so I guess my question to you is, if you had to rank Miami in the top seven, let's start the show with that. Where do you rank them? All right, we're going to go seven is probably – it's USF. Um, six, uh, probably F- – can it be FAU? Um, maybe FAU. Uh, five would be UCF. Uh, and you got FIU really high. That's right. Oh my God. Forgot about FIU. FIU is dead last. Never mind. Uh, them, I, I tied them and USF tied for last. Okay. Um, so that'd be seven uh, tied for seven. Uh, right in front of them will be FAU. Right after that would be UCF. Um, you know, Miami and Florida state to me right now, I would tie them. Um, and I'd put uh, the Gators at the top. Well, uh, when, when people, you know, if you, if you log on and or sign up for the athletic.com, you can read my full article and my full breakdown, but essentially I, I put Miami fourth right now. Um, I have them behind UCF and FSU and Florida of course is number one, but here's why I have UCF ranked ahead of Miami. Number one, better offense. Okay. Numbers across the board, even with the injuries, even with losing their, their guys, they are putting up better numbers than Miami offensively. So if Miami and UCF were to meet right now, I'd probably take the Knights to win, depending on where it's played. Um, Florida State has two uh, Power 5 wins. Miami has none this year. They've lost six straight Power 5 games. And then, of course, Florida um, is the best team in the state, even with three losses. So um, that's the state of the affairs in my mind. Uh, Miami is falling back behind UCF. And one thought to, to put in Hurricanes fans' minds is, you know, UCF's going to be going to the Big 12 soon. Um, they have a very good recruiting class that they're putting together up there in Gus Malzahn's first season. They got a lot of Central Florida kids that want to go there now that they're beating Miami for, by the way. Yep. And Florida State, for all their flaws and being 0-4 to start the season and losing to Jacksonville State, you got to say right now that they, if, if they and Miami were to meet right now, I'd probably take Florida State to win. I wouldn't blame you. I think Florida State is trending upwards. I think the uh, my biggest concern if they met when they met when they meet this season is, as you know, Miami has big issues with multiple quarterbacks, and and Jordan Travis just ripped up North Carolina on the ground last week. Um, leading them to a victory, and uh, I don't think we can handle that. On top of that, their defensive line is very good. They've got a really good edge pass rusher. Our offensive line, of course, is not very good, and uh, they've got really good running backs, which we have a problem tackling. So, yeah, not looking good when we go up to Tallahassee. And I would even venture to say that there's a chance that if Miami and FAU were to play, that FAU could beat Miami right now because Nikosi Perry, by the way, former Hurricane, playing the quarterback position a lot better than anybody for the Hurricanes. Um, Give you some numbers here. Uh, 60% completion percentage, 1,471 yards, 11 touchdowns, and four picks. I ranked him the number one quarterback in the state in my Sunshine State uh, midseason report. I got him and Emory Jones, who Emory Jones is more of a dual threat, although he's got more interceptions. But I named two quarterbacks to the team, and none of them were Hurricanes. So, um I, I picked the whole team, uh, offense, defense, special teams. And, uh, again, if you want to check that out, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic. I think we still got some deals going, 50% off or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, it, it's scary because it's one thing to say, hey, you know, they're only a couple plays away from from beating Virginia and North Carolina and being 4-2 and, and people, you know, talking about, well, they're 2-0 in the Coastal and, 
you know, even with all the tackling issues, you know, maybe this thing isn't as bleak as it is, but the reality is the entire state sucks. (laughs) The entire state sucks, which gets me back to a bigger point, which is, you know, the players or the coaches, right? Everybody wants to say it's the coaches. You got to fire them. I've been a proponent on here for several weeks now talking to different people. You, you included Carlos. And I've said it very overrated recruiting rankings for Florida players. And a lot of them are going places and not panning out. And yes, I understand some of your snickering saying, but we lead, you know, South Florida leads the country with the most NFL players. Correct. But it also leads it in most overhyped players. And there's a lot of guys who have been really, really bad disappointments. And I think there's a culture issue in South Florida when it comes to developing these high school players. I think there's guys that just don't have what it takes mentally to grow and be elite players. And, and I don't know if it's because they've got people in their ear telling them, Hey, you're, you're, you know, the coach uh, isn't using you right. You need to do something different than what he's telling you, but it's not just at Miami. Okay. And, and that's what that, that's what I learned in that midseason report. There are a lot of teams in the state of Florida struggling right now. And that wasn't the case several years ago, Carlos. No. And uh, it's, it's really strange to see. I think the hurricanes have become sort of like a, the Dane Cook of college football. Like Dane Cook was really hot as a comedian for a while. Mm-hmm. He was in movies. Everybody loved him. And all of a sudden he just dropped off the face of the earth and nobody cares about Dane Cook anymore. And that's basically where the Hurricanes are right now. And it's <clears throat> it's crazy to see the rest of the state going the same way. And it, I mean, like you say, what's the, the what's the through line between all these teams? What's the, the common denominator? All these teams are stacking their, their rosters up with Florida players. Now, um, UCF is getting a little bit more of the Central Florida players. Uh, Florida State gets more of the North Florida players along with South Florida players. So it's a different mix. But um, I think I was thinking about this today also. I I don't think it's just the issue with South Florida kids and the players being overhyped. I think one of the issues with the Hurricanes this year um, and that has been trending over the last couple of years is the over-reliance on the transfer portal, I think, is maybe having a negative effect on the team because now what they're creating is a culture of mercenaries where individuals are coming to the Hurricanes to get additional snaps to raise their profile to hopefully get drafted as opposed to coming to somewhere where you want to build a program and win. And then guys that end up losing playing time to these mercenaries get pissed off. And they're like, why the hell am I going to work hard if this guy's just going to go in the portal and pull somebody else? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I agree. I think there's certainly something to team culture, right? When when you come in together as freshmen or or, or you're part of a group, you know, that, that, that is sort of connected, um, you know, that's sort of an innate thing that helps a team come along that that adds to the team chemistry. And, and certainly I think there is some disruption to guys coming in as free agents. I mean, this is an element that we didn't have in college football. And now we do. Yep. So but I think, Carlos, one thing, you know, besides the transfer portal, 
I just think it's it's kind of remarkable, right? Where where you look around the rest of the state and every team is struggling. And I think, you know, we can't just sit here and turn a blind eye to that because while the hurricanes have been awful for a lot of different reasons, tackling being the primary thing, um, Florida is four and three now. Uh, Florida State's two and four. Um, USF's one and five. FIU's one and five. Um I'm going to throw out some numbers and, and some stats here for you that are that are sort of eye opening from my story. I'm going to see if I can grab it here um, off this Google Doc that I that I put together. But just some numbers here, uh, you know, FIU, for instance. OK, when Butch first got there, um, they went 23 and 16 his first three seasons and um, beat Miami, obviously, in the last one there in, in that bowl stretch where they went to three straight bowl games. Um, since beating Miami, they have yet to beat another FBS opponent, and they've lost to Marshall, Arkansas State, Liberty, Middle Tennessee State, Jacksonville State, Western Kentucky, Texas State, Texas Tech, Central Michigan, Charlotte, and FAU twice. The only win is over Long Island University. Um, they rank 122nd in scoring defense. If there's so much talent in South Florida where FIU and FAU can load up, why is FIU struggling in, a, in Conference USA? Um, right. It's not like Butch Davis <clears throat> all of a sudden forgot how to coach. Uh, USF, remember, they were number two in the country at one point, uh, not not too many years ago under uh, Jim Levitt, right? Um, uh, what's his face went there? The former Texas and Louisville coach, Charlie Strong, Charlie Strong, Strong defensive yeah. coordinator, went from ten and two to seven and six and four and eight in three seasons prior to Scott's arrival. Scott comes over; he's a wonderkind, right? He's a kid who. 40 years old, I think at age 25, he leads a state champ- uh, state championship team in his first season in South Carolina, immediately joins the Clemson staff, becomes co-offensive coordinator. Um, since he's been there, USF has lost 13 of his first 15 games. Uh, the only wins are over the Citadel and Florida A&M. Um, defensive rankings, horrendous, horrendously bad. Um, can't find a quarterback. Again, the state of Florida is so loaded with talent. What's going on at USF? Um, FAU, Willie Taggart. Okay, the Owls uh, under Lane Kiffin were doing okay. They're three and three this year. They're coming off a thirty-one to fourteen loss at UAB. Uh, Nikosi Perry's played well for them defensively. They're doing okay, but again, if this state is so loaded with players, why aren't these schools facing lesser competition playing better? I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here. I'm just trying to make a point that while while we're all in our tunnel looking at the University of Miami and criticizing it fairly because it deserves – that football team deserves a ton of criticism. Um, It's not like other people are coming into the state and winning easily. Like, it's just not happening. Um, And, you know, I I think there's a serious issue. I think there's something wrong at the root level – of where these players are coming from. They're not being developed either at the high school level that they need to. They're not getting the training or they're going in with the wrong mentality. So anyway, I I just wanted to kind of put that into context here before we get into other stuff, especially Manny Diaz. I know everybody's tuning in because they want to hear, well, when's Manny Diaz getting fired? Um, I think it's pretty obvious now, right, Carlos, that as long as they remain competitive and they fight to the end like they did, they're not going to fire him this season. Maybe. Yeah, weren't you telling me uh, they offered him an extension at the end of the North Carolina game? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, he's got two years left on his contract. When Miami gets embarrassed, the one thing we know is um, Blake James fired Al Golden when he got embarrassed. It was 58 nothing. He fired him. 
if something like that happens, that's there's a possibility of him getting fired. But otherwise, I, I just or he think, embarrasses the university like uh, Ed Orgeron, or he, he pulls a right, <laughs> right. If he, he go, if he goes out and he tries to pick up the wife of uh, the pregnant wife of some trustee or something like that, or he but, pulls an Urban Meyer at a bar like Sandbar or something like that. I mean, I think guys, I think people around the fans around the city are going to try and take Manny Diaz out for a beer and just set him up somehow, roofie his drink, <laughs> take pictures of him with a co-ed, and just try to get him out that way. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's probably the only way it happens because the guy's in bed by 11 o'clock at night most nights and he's in the office at 4.35 in the morning. He's focused on trying to figure this out. It, look, look, man, um, I came away from that game on Saturday feeling like Miami wants greatness, right? The, 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 the fans want the greatness. They want, it, they want to go back to the glory days. But there are some fundamental issues that I think whether it's Manny Diaz or somebody else, some other great coach that comes in here, if they happen to find, uh, I don't know, $20 million lying around somewhere. Um, I think if, if they're, if they're able to pull it off, that guy's going to have a hard time too fixing the culture here, because to yeah. me, how do you explain? And Manny Diaz is right. When he says this, how do you explain guys abandoning their training? Do you think Manny Diaz is going around in practice or Travaris Robinson is going around and practice teaching these guys to shoulder tackle everything. Right. Yeah. Like, is that happening? Like, really, you think that's happening? Do you think they're teaching Tyler Van Dyke to underthrow wide open receivers? Or, um, or they're, uh, or they're teaching uh, Navon Donaldson to completely avoid a guy that's standing right in front of him and down block on a pass protection. Just leave a guy free running right at Tyler Van Dyke. Right. It, it, it's a culture issue, which again, yes, maybe Manny Diaz, somebody else has to come in here to change the voice. But I think fundamentally there, are, there are serious issues just with player mentality, you know, thinking about going to the NFL, standing out. Why else would you explain guys blowing off assignment? Why would you blow an assignment? If, if, if you were a good football player, why? Because you're dumb a, because you don't know what you're supposed to be doing or B because you're trying to do something. So you show up on film and people, wow, what a tremendous play. Yeah. It's hero ball. They're hero trying to ball. play hero ball. They're trying to make that killer. They're trying to kill, get that kill shot uh, on Sam Howell, be on ESPN top plays. And then who gives a shit about the results of the game? Look at me. I was on TV. I put that on tape. Now my draft stock is up. That's what it is. And, and I know Miami fans don't want to hear it. You're like, oh, bleep you guys. You guys are Manny Diaz apologists. I can't believe you. You're suckers. It's the coaching. It's a, yeah, it's the coaching. Here's where it's the coaching. Manny Diaz can't get them to do it right. Yeah. That's that's the failure. He can't that, get and, and right. the other the other thing that is definitely Manny Diaz's fault is he's putting when he puts players in bad positions in positions where they shouldn't be, where they have not been successful in the past. They've proven it and he continues to put them in those positions. Case in point, putting Gervin Hall in the slot over Josh Downs. Why? Why? Gervin Hall couldn't cover anybody. And he's gonna cover Josh Downs in the slot? Come on, man. No, that that I completely agree with. And at a certain point, and, and, and it's sad that, it, again, this is Manny learning on the job, right? This is what happens when you hire a first time head coach, a guy who his first year has to figure out this is the wrong offense we're in. Right. We need to bring in a different coordinator. Then it's a guy who takes a defensive coordinator job back and thinks, well, I can trust Gervin Hall and I can trust Bubba Bolden yeah. and I can trust this guy. And then he waits half the season to finally bench their asses. Yep. That's that's where Manny Diaz is at fault, and that's where he's a rookie head coach, and that's where I blame the administration again for not realizing that 
the only way you're going to succeed here is by having somebody who's not learning on the job because there's no time for that. There's just no time for that here. Nobody seems, gonna... and it seems like he's, he's like you said, too loyal to these players. I guess he's invested so much in the recruitment process and the relationship building process. And I mean, it's, it's sad to say, but the guy's too empathetic towards these guys. This guy, he, he likes them too much and he's not cutthroat enough to be able to pull the plug on them and say, listen, I'm sorry. I don't care about your feelings. We have to do what's best for the team. And now he's trying to do that after six games, trying to make some corrections to get these guys that have been letting him down all season long off the field and play some other guys. But at this point, it's maybe too late. And let's not forget something, because I heard Manny Diaz's interview on the Joe Rose show Monday and, and, and Joe basically asked him, essentially, you know, were there signs? And, and it's not were there signs. It's do you know your personnel? Do you know your players? And of course, there were signs. This isn't brand new, the poor tackling. This is no. something we saw in spurts last year. This is something we knew would happen the moment Jalen Phillips and Quincy Roche were gone, right? We knew the pass rush wasn't going to be good. And again, this is a guy who was going to go to Temple for his first head coaching job. And then instead of, you know, marrying the, the girl who's probably like a four or five, somebody flashes an eight at him because that's what Miami is. They're not a 10. They're an eight. And and says, hey, uh, why don't you marry this girl instead? Of course, he's going to take the job. That doesn't yep. mean he's ready for it. Doesn't mean he's ready to handle everything that this comes with. And man, he's a super smart guy. He is. He's, he's empathetic. He's got the right tone. He cares. All the things that you need. He is a Miami native. He knows the neighborhood. The problem is sometimes you're just not cut out for it or you're not ready for it. And yeah. this is the kind of job where you need a badass to come in here and not only reset the culture, but know the recruiting landscape, deal with all the seven on seven asshole coaches and all the handlers and all the street agents and all the high school coaches who were pissed because you didn't give them a job on the staff and still get those kids to come here. The best yeah. ones, not, not, not the overrated four stars. So, that's what it's going to take here. Now, is the Miami administration going to do that? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I'll put it to you this way. I, and I, I know Gary Furman from Canesport put out a huge article today saying how Miami's going to, in his opinion, that Miami's going to start operating like a first-class business. And they got the Moss family. Jose Moss is one of the board of trustees. And I, I'll believe it when I see it, bro. I'll believe the money is going to be spent to bring in quality when I see it. Because that's never happened here. No. I mean, the, the closest they got was Mark Rick, and that was just sort and of a happy came, accident. And he came here on a discount, bro. Yeah. He came here on a discount. Because <laughs> he was still getting paid by Georgia. So he took that, that mitigated contract where he didn't get paid too much by the U, and he gave money back when he retired. Right. Not only that, but he gave money for the indoor practice facility. That's, that's even crazier. And, and he laid the foundation for them to take Manny because he, yeah. he felt Manny deserved that opportunity. But again um, – Nothing personal against Manny. Uh, I, I, I just think I said this from day one. Um, we've had the guy from Temple here before. We've had the defensive coordinator who was part of a, a, a good team. Um, that's not what it's going to take to win here. And there's no learning on the job and there's no patience because the fan base has had 17, 18 years of this. Now, again, unless the administration feels the same way, nothing's going to change. You're going to end up with another, with another coach that's going to fail as well. And let's think back to when this program was really built, right? Um, it was built 
by a guy who was a powerhouse personality and a powerhouse guy in Howard Schnellenberger, an NFL guy, a guy with legit credentials having coached with the 72 Dolphins as the offensive coordinator, a guy who commanded respect in South Florida. And that's what it took to build the program. Now, everybody else that came after was building on the heels of that and didn't necessarily have to be that same kind of guy. They had their own personalities. They had the opportunity to build things their own way and just ride that wave as opposed to having to build it from the ground up out of nothing. Um, this isn't that job anymore. It's not that, you know, plug and play. You can take a guy from the Mac. You could take somebody that's unknown from a smaller school. You could take a guy from Washington state or Oklahoma state. Now that's unknown and plug them in here and let them, let them run the program. That's it's not that anymore because the recruiting environment and the landscape has changed significantly. Competition for players has changed significantly. Now, Everybody's on TV. You could watch a hundred games on a Saturday. I sit here in my in my house on Saturdays, put on YouTube TV. I can I'm flipping between 15 games at a time because it's everything's on TV. There's a network for everything. It's no longer like I have to play at one of these major schools to be seen. No, you could be seen anywhere. Now it's up to now it's more about producing or, or developing players to get to the NFL. And guys are making business decisions about where they want to go. And I mean, coaches are 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 feeding players to certain programs so they can continue doing what they do when they feed those players to those programs and all that other stuff that's associated with it. But it's, it's not the same landscape that the coach has to navigate. And it's going to take somebody with more presence, more experience, more gravitas, and really more of a guy, a piss and vinegar guy than a guy that's going to be empathetic to the players and, and wallow with them in, in sadness when they're not performing. And cause that's their dude and they recruited him and they trusted him and he's letting me down and how I'm not going to let him go. I'm going to keep building him and keep getting burned by it. I mean, at some point, you have to fish your cup bait, bro. You're going to be out there on the field. You got to produce. If you don't produce, I'm sorry. I like you as a person, but you're hurting the team. You're asking us to go to the bench. And if you want to get back on that field, you got to earn it. And that is what it is. Now, I, I was thinking the other day, trying to outside the box, because the hardest thing is figuring out, okay, who's the perfect guy for this, right? And 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 I've always said Mario Cristobal in my mind, because he's a coach. He's been coaching for years. Um, he knows the landscape down here. Uh, I know some people aren't necessarily happy with it. They don't think he's that that impressive. But uh, I think he would thrive here because of the recruiting and because he knows the landscape. But there is one other person outside the box that I think if I was in Miami's administration, I would say this would be my plan. I would make Alonzo Highsmith the head coach. And I know maybe that sounds crazy because he's an NFL player personnel director with the Seattle Seahawks. but And he's never been a coach. He's always been on the personnel side. But ultimately, what this entire college football business really is about is identifying talent, maximizing the talent, um, and identifying guys who fit the culture. And I think Alonzo Highsmith would know what kind of player Miami needs here. And I think he would also have a lot of great connections through the NFL and through the coaching circles to hire a terrific offensive coordinator and a terrific defensive coordinator and put the kind of staff together that is needed here as a CEO. Mm -hmm. And Alonzo has a lot of experience talking to these kids. It's not like he's disconnected. Uh, he, he talks to them when they're coming out of the draft, right? When they're seniors. So he knows the mentality already. So to me, I, I know that there was a conversation about maybe making a chief of staff with another. That's never going to work here. There is one guy who has to have the vision for the program. There is no GM role. I think the closest thing you can get is by is naming somebody like Highsmith Head coach, he doesn't have to do the coaching. Just go out and shop for the uh, ingredients to make the meal and, and, and be a representative that excites people here about football, gets them fired up, and, and gets them 
gets things headed in the direction where it needs to be getting. Um, that's my opinion. That's my outside the box thought. I think that's that's the uh, gentleman Jack talking, but um, it's <laughs> it's an interesting thought though. I mean, it, nobody's ever pulled something like that before, um, and I think one of the the things aside from being the head guy and the CEO, the head coach also has to manage the practice plans, manage how they're doing things on a daily basis. But if if he's putting together the right kind of staff and he's delegating most of it and he's just overseeing things, then maybe it could work. I mean, I don't know. Um, it, it's it's a little scary to have a guy like Alonzo in there like you said, because he hasn't coached and he hasn't done it at the college level because the grind is different, man. I know a, a player personnel guy works hard, but that coaching position is different. And when those losses start piling on and the shit starts hitting the fan, it's a different level of pressure and a different level of stress that kicks in when you need to write the ship. You're seeing it with Manny Diaz. The guy looks like he's aged 50 years in the last two weeks. Um, he was standing up by himself on the field at North Carolina after the game, just reflecting like, how the hell did I get to this point? Um, it's not an easy thing to do if you don't have the experience doing it. Not only do you have to manage those in-season, in-practice things, the player issues that develop from a disciplinary standpoint, arrests, class issues, but you're also having to manage the game as a coach. Well, you know, making decisions at the end of the game, using timeouts. When do we go for it? When do we not? What are we doing with our personnel? Doing all that kind of stuff because, yeah, the coordinators are going to handle the game plan and they're going to call their plays, but at the end of the day, the major decisions are going to turn to you and say, hey, what are we doing? Because I'm not the head coach, you are. And you can't have two guys basically being the head coaches of their respective units and not reporting to one dude as the final say-so. That's the way it's got to be. It's, he can be a CEO, but he's also got to have his hands on the program. You're right. And and look, it, it, it ultimately is a job for somebody who has done it before. My question is, which one of those guys is going to come here and be affordable? I think they could pay Alonzo Highsmith a couple million dollars to be the head coach. He could spend more on his coordinators and his assistants, put the money where it needs to go, which is on the field, and just let him oversee the whole thing. Um, Listen, I'm going to give you two names right now. One is going to sound ridiculous based on what's happened recently, but number one is Ed Orgeron because he just got a $17 million buyout. Couldn't coach here, man. Couldn't. South Beach <laughs> around the corner. The amount I know. Of that's what I was thinking. He, he'd be no in Brickle, and there, there's, there's no way he'd survive a season if that's embarrassing to the university. But I'll tell you what, he, he was, if you're talking about a D that can hit, Coach O's D can hit, baby. That thing is batting a thousand right now. <laughs> Who's your other one? You gave you said you had two. I'd say Gus Malzahn, uh, because he's currently on a, on a cheap buyout at UCF. He's not making much money. He's played. He's he was an offensive coordinator on a national championship team. He's coached in the SEC for a long time. He's got recruiting ties here in South Florida. He guys he has guys on his staff that can step in and recruit down here immediately. Um, I think he would be a good fit down here just because he's got that kind of, kind of personality too. He's kind of a, gregar a gregarious kind of guy. He's not laid back. He's not the type of guy that's a, not afraid. He's not afraid to make decisions um, like pulling the offensive coordinator duties away from somebody, uh, like switching roles up on the team. He's a, He's got the experience to make it happen down here. And he's recruited well and, and won it at, at, at Auburn, which I know he didn't win the big one on his own as a head coach, but he was successful there. Just ran out of time. People were, were saying, hey, listen, we got to beat Alabama and get to the national title. And it wasn't enough for them. All right. Um, we're going to get back into this kind of conversation in a little bit. We got some Q&A to come up, but it's 830 here on Tuesday, October 19th, as we record this. And I, and I want to get into the Miami at midseason report, because that is something I got to finish here within the next uh, probably 24 hours. Um, I guess, first off, let's just go topic by topic. Uh, best surprise of the season. Let's start positive here. What has been the best surprise in your mind? 
Wow. The best surprise. That's, that that's might be the difficult. toughest question. Yeah. That is the toughest question. Can we circle back to that one? Cause I'm really, I'm not, <laughs> not, not ready for that one. I'm not ready for the positive stuff. <laughs> well, what about the worst surprise? What's uh, you know, what, what is, what has surprised you in a bad way? Uh, how poorly this defense is playing and how bad the tackling has been. Okay. Fair enough. I, I think we can agree with that. Right. I mean, uh, we didn't expect it to be this horrible, this bad. And I, and I think more than anything, I would say, the secondary to me, because you had so much experience coming back. You had Bubba Bolden, um, Gervin Hall, guys that have been starters in their careers here. And really, you've gotten nothing out of it. Uh, other than Tyreek Stevenson, nobody's really played well in the secondary. James Williams has come in and, and, and certainly, you know, done some things as a freshman. Um, same with Cam Kitchens. But Overall, you can't sit here with a straight face and say, yeah, they, they, those guys have performed well. I mean, they, they, that has been probably the biggest problem area. And I can't say that at the beginning of the year, I felt that way. I can't say that I, I thought that was going to happen. A couple of little notes here. Gervin Hall, by the way, PFF grade, 44.6, um, which is horrendous. I think when I looked up FBS safeties with at least 200 snaps, I think he's the third worst in the country this year. Um, yeah. It, really ugly. Um, what about best surprise? You've had a few minutes to let it marinate. What do you got? Oh, maybe uh, Leonard Taylor. I'd oh. say the way he's been playing lately or or possibly, uh, you know, how explosive Jalen Knighton's been in the two games that he's been back. Okay. I agree with that. I think Jalen Knighton has looked really good in the two games he's been back. Uh, and, it, and it's a positive sign going forward because – Don Chaney can't seem to stay healthy. Obviously, Cameron Harris is out for the year with the with the uh, knee injury. Um, and and you need some of those guys to, to sort of revive the offense, right, to, to put some some other element into it, the running game. Um, Cameron Harris had been playing okay. I thought he'd been playing above average for, for Cameron Harris. Uh, and then, unfortunately, that first run in the second half, 22-yard run, he, he blows out his knee as he's cutting, uh, unfortunately for him. But, yeah, I, I would say Jalen Knighton, Leonard Taylor's a good pick. I, I would also venture to say Cameron Kitchens. I didn't, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's uh, of all the freshmen, I don't think people had them high on their list of guys who would be, who'd be performing well. And I think, you know, obviously with Avante Williams, everybody thought he would be on the field first, but I think Cameron Kitchens has really proven what a great tackler he is. He's got one missed tackle all season. Um, and, and that's the best percentage on anybody on the defense. So I'm going to say best surprise is, is Cam Kitchens. And then uh, defining stat, I think we can agree on this one, right? 110 missed, 10 missed tackles. 110 missed tackles, no doubt. Um, nobody worse at it than Takori Couch, uh, Wayman Steed, Amari Carter, all in the double digits. Uh, Bubba Bolden with nine, according to Pro Football Focus. So, yes, 110. And I think North Carolina State is like 35. They're the best tackling team. Yeah, I just ACC. looked that up today. They, uh, they've only got 35 missed tackles the entire season. Right. I think without question, that's the defining stat. Uh, breakout player. Is there a breakout player? I know this might repeat best surprise, but is there a breakout player? Oh, man. Um, again, you know, Jalen Knighton right now <laughs> or Leonard Taylor. That's about uh -huh. it because it, really there's nobody that's been – uh, so impressive that I have to say, wow, this guy's really been lighting it up all year. Well, one guy I would say who, who's who's been a surprise, and maybe I didn't, and not a breakout player, but Jared Williams at right tackle has played really well, at least according well, to how he's graded out here with Pro Football Focus. Which he's a guy that the coaching staff—it's a surprise to them because they put his ass on the bench yeah. to start the season. 
I mean, and it's it's funny that he is uh, that we're talking about him as breaking out or, or playing really well when he's just you know okay. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. not. It's not like he's playing amazing. He's playing okay, and that uh, that's enough to get him some some praise. Yeah, and, and Charleston Rambo has been the most consistent. I think offensive player Miami's had, and he really hasn't been great per se, but he's been the most consistent producer um, on the offensive side of the ball all season. Um, All right. Best play. Is there one that sticks out in your mind as the best play for the Hurricanes this season? Um, You know, I would go with either the Romello Brinson catch or Jafari Harvey's interception this weekend. I agree. I would also go with that. I think it was a 44 yard field goal that won the Appalachian state game. Uh, Cause otherwise Miami would be one in five right now. Uh, if not for Andy Borgales hitting that pressure kick that and second game of the year at home. I know he missed it one against Virginia, but I would say, yes, uh, the Brinson catch for, for just, you know, how exciting it was, what a great catch it was. And then Harvey for, for, you know, the pick six first one since 2018, uh, or 2019, rather, but uh, that kick that Borgales made was certainly the most important as far as Miami's bowl hopes are concerned because I think they're going to be right there on that edge, five or six wins this year. After they're going to be on that bubble. Yeah, they're going to be on that bubble. Um, biggest question. Wow. Um, will Manny Diaz survive the season? Mm-hmm. This is probably the biggest question uh, of the team. I think the second question is, is there anybody they can put on the field that can tackle on a consistent basis? Uh, on defense that would be my second question <laughs> I agree I, I think you know obviously we're going to talk a lot about Manny Diaz and we have already but um, I would say another question is who on this staff at the end of the season assuming Manny Diaz keeps his job do you keep um, I, I think you keep Lashley if he wants to stay um, I think a lot of what's going on with Lashley is that he was he was dealt a bad hand with the offensive line playing like crap early on in the season. Uh, Jerry King being injured. He wasn't 100% even when he did play. He's now working in a, a young quarterback, and he's been putting up, they've been putting up points the last couple of weeks, um, even with those sort of deficiencies and those handicaps. So I think Lashley definitely stays. Um, you know, Eric Hickson, he hasn't done anything wrong. <laughs> he's always got his running backs ready to play, apparently. So the running back coach should come back. Um you know, our, our, our wide receivers coach at this point, you know, he's, he's done okay. You know, he's uh, not done anything worthy of getting him fired, getting himself fired. He pulled Mark Pope and uh, D Wiggins off the field. So that's a good thing. Um, you know, I, I don't know that Stephen Fields comes back, you know, the way Will Mallory is playing right now. Uh, the tight ends have not been a bright spot. Elijah Rodeo has got some talent. He's shown some flash, but has not been uh, doing much lately. Uh, but to me, if we had another question about biggest disappointment, I don't know if that's on there. But to me, it's a Will Mallory on this team. Defensively, um, I don't know if Packy comes back. I don't think he survives the season being the linebackers coach. Um, with the rumors that Travis Robinson is not happy, I don't know if he comes back. I don't know if T. Rob's back. Um, I think maybe Ishmael comes back unless he gets an offer at a, at a bigger school, at an SEC school, to be a position coach. DVD probably comes back, um, even though the DBs aren't playing well, just because he's, he's a hometown guy, he's a hurricane, and he's only in charge of the corners, not the safeties who have been – missing tackles left and right all season. Um, I don't know, man. I think that's, that's pretty much everybody on the D line. Just Simpson. I think he comes back. Cause I don't think uh, unless he gets another NFL offer. I guess the second one would be as a follow-up, does, does Manny retain the defensive coordinator position? If he keeps the job, I would say no. I, I think he's realized how much he's taken on all at once. And uh, I think it's starting to wear on him and, and he needs to be able to make that decision, give that, that over to somebody else and try to manage the entire program. 
as opposed to trying to focus on one area of the ball and then being split, uh, being split up amongst all his other duties. All right. This is a recruiting update. You don't have to weigh in on this, but Miami uh, down to eight commitments. Obviously, if you haven't been paying attention, I'm just going to take a brief moment to say Traquan Fagans dropped Miami last week. He was a top 100 player cornerback at Alabama and as expected is going to Alabama. So how dare he? The, the point, the point here being Miami can get commitments from whoever the F they want. If Alabama, Georgia, and somebody worth a damn wants them, they're not coming to Miami. And as fans, just accept it. That's just the way life is right now. It's not going to change anytime soon. Um, and, and I don't know how steady the rest of the commits are. I don't call these guys and ask them every day what they're thinking. Um, I know that there's a lot of other people who do that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm, I'm so tired of, of being that guy in the past. I grew up doing it for a long time. There's really no point. A lot of these guys end up being busts anyway. There's no reason to invest all this energy and time to worry about it. In the end, whoever is the coach next year has to get the guys that he brings in to perform. That's it. Yep. That's the bottom line. Um, that's your recruiting update. Uh, <laughs> that was your reluctant recruiting update. That was my reluctant <laughs> recruiting update. All right. Most important remaining game. Huh. Um, Florida State. Agreed. Completely. Yeah. Because if the season goes to crap and uh, you could at least have one victory to hang your head on and say, listen, we beat them now five times in a row, it's got to be Florida State. You don't want to, and you don't want to lose to Florida State in the season where they lost to Jacksonville State. You don't want that to happen. Agreed. A thousand percent. And I would say the other aspect is um, it, it really will affect recruiting because there will be kids in the 23 and 24 cycles who say, Man, from 14th in the preseason to losing to the team that wasn't supposed to even be eligible. And I'll tell you what, that, that could very well decide whether or not Miami goes to a bowl game because yeah. Florida State's going to be right there on that bubble as well. So that game in Tallahassee uh, is going to be valuable for a lot of reasons. All right, predicted final record. What do you got? I'm going to go seven and five. All right, I'm going to go six and six. I had seven and five earlier, but – I don't think they're going to beat Pittsburgh or North Carolina state in these next two weeks. I just think they probably lose both of those games by two or three touchdowns. Um, and they're not, and they're not even in, in the fourth quarter. I think it's like, they're trying to fight back to get their way into it. I think both of those teams are just better than Miami right now. I think they beat North Carolina state this weekend, but they lose to Pitt. Okay. And I think Miami's at the end, they got to win four straight and that's how they save Manny's job by, uh, by winning four in a row to end the year, not against any no. major competition, but, Georgia Tech, uh, Duke, Florida State, and who's the other one that I'm forgetting? They got another team. Uh, Florida State, Duke, Georgia Tech, and Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech, who, by the way, their their season's pretty much kaput now, too, after losing this past weekend. So I think uh, the fact that that game is at home, too, helps Miami tremendously playing Virginia Tech here. Um, and that's right. going to be a very important game because that's going to be the, the fire his ass game, the fire his ass bowl between Justin Fuente and Manny Diaz. The loser <laughs> right. probably gets fired. I was on with Andy Bitter on the uh, Atlantic and Coastal podcast earlier today, and we talked about, you know, whose seat is hotter. And I told him, I said, it's got to be Manny because he took over the defense. Fuente didn't do anything stupid like that. He still has one more chess move. He can always <laughs> say, I'll be the offensive coordinator the rest of the year and try to salvage himself that way. Um, and, and just, or Manny could pull a, have you ever seen that old movie, Blazing Saddles? Yes. He could pull a Blazing Saddles, and put a gun to his own head and be like, hey, hey. I'll get rid of him. I'll do it myself. I'll kill him. Don't worry about it. It's all good. <laughs> all right. Let's get into questions here. And, and this is just a collection of, of some that I had on the Q&A here at uh, 
the athletic as well as uh, some Twitter questions that you guys send in. So here, that'll be interesting here. This is uh, some of this might be repetitive. The stuff we've talked about earlier, but just in case, we'll try to take the best parts of this uh, out of here. Why do Miami fans and alumni seem to think that firing Manny, um, that Miami would be able to hire away any better coach than him? Who wants to coach a team where if you don't achieve top 10 level success before the end of your third year, people are calling for your head and, and you are fireable. It seems to me that if Miami wants to attract top level coaches, they should give the coaches a real chance to build a program. Kyle R. Maybe Kyle R is uh, Blake James. Um, yeah, but- Kyle, that sounded way too reasonable. That was too sensible. Uh, you're definitely a plant from the administration, of the athletic department. I don't want to hear it again. That's Kyle R. Blake James's son. Um <laughs> Well, what, what's your take on that? Do you think that Miami reacting this way and potentially firing Manny will turn coaches away from taking this job? I think it has already to an extent. No, I, I think coaches around the country um, see how unreasonable the fan base's expectations are and see how um, the tide turns after one loss. And how, you know, fans react when a recruit decommits and how they attack him, um, what's being said about coaches, the cottage industry of uh, that's being built around fire the coach and insider info. I mean, it's it's not like you're dealing with a fan base that has, you know, that patience and they can say, you know, it knows the game enough to say, listen, maybe we got to give him a little bit more time and we got to do this. Maybe it's not that bad as we think. Um, but again, I mean, most college football fan bases are not reasonable, but ours seems to be a little bit on the edge of, uh, not just unreasonable, but violently unreasonable. And that might turn some coaches off. I agree to an extent, but I also know that there's only 130 of these jobs at the FBS level every single year. And I think there's a lot of guys now who see what's happened to guys like Willie Taggart, right? He was fired in the middle of his second season. Um, there's other coaches being relieved of duties a lot quicker these days. It is a pressure cooker. Um, so while it may turn away, maybe the right coach, I still think Miami's going to have a pretty reasonably sized pool of guys throwing their names in the hat, wanting this job. Oh yeah. Um, I think the bigger issue for Miami is who's the guy selecting them, right? Who's right. the guy making that hire? Um, and can that guy reasonably see, uh, somebody who may not be an expensive coach for what he is, if he's a really good coach, can, can he weed through what needs to be weeded through to find a gym? And that's I don't the kind of guy you can get is, is a guy that's, who's a gem who really wants an opportunity to be a head coach uh, at this level. But if you're talking about a, a major guy, um, a guy that's already won, a guy that's going to come here it may turn him off. And I think one of the things you're going to need is like, let's say Mario Cristobal decides he wants to take a crack at this job. You're, you're going to have to give him assurances that he's going to have a certain amount of time to be able to build this program the way he wants and that you're going to give him exactly what he needs. If not, he's not coming down here. That's what those buyouts are for. That's what the assurances <laughs> are. That's really what, they, what they're for. Yeah. Um, what's a better strategy right now, the transfer portal or trying to save our recruiting class? This is from uh, Long Sadan on Twitter. That's a fantastic Twitter name. Um, right now, I would say going the JUCO route and the transfer portal is probably the best way to go. Not just because they aren't building the recruiting class and they're having a horrible season. So it's hard to bring in high school recruits right now and get them interested. Um, but I, I think that because they have so many young guys that are being placed into prominent roles, uh, getting more playing time and eventually taking over as starters within you know the next year, I, I think there's not a need to 
get a bunch of high school guys. I think there's a there's a, a better it's a better allocation of resources to use those scholarships on guys that could be role players and backups that have experience that could lend something to these young guys because they're going to be here for a while, as opposed to recruiting another high school guy who's going to sit behind someone who's only a year ahead of them. And then they're going to piss, get pissed off and transfer halfway through the season because they're not getting any play in time. Uh, agreed. I, I would actually cut the scholarship numbers down from 85 to 70. So there's just less people around on scholarships so that if you need to use it on somebody in the middle of the season, somebody enters the transfer portal, you want to get that guy in here. Uh, and, and, and then I also think it's, there's something to having less guys around. I think you, you, you invite fewer problems on the roster, right? Guys who are upset and sulking in the locker room because they're not playing. Uh, I, I think you trim the number of scholarships you need in the end injuries happen. Yes. You could get to a point where you have to use a walk on, but I mean, in the end, you really only take 50, 55 guys with you on a trip. And, yeah. you know, if you keep the number around 70, you have 15 injuries a year. Uh, I, I just think that that's a problem that Manny Diaz encountered this year was too many guys wanted back and he didn't know how to tell them to go away. Yeah. Listen, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Mark Pope and, and D Wiggins, the coaching staff wanted them gone this summer. And they, and they said, no, we're going to come back. We we're, we're, we're going to stick it out because we're going to prove to you we can get this right. And the reality is they didn't leave. And, and now they're leaving in the middle of the year sulking and, Everybody's writing about it like it's a big deal. But, the, but the, I mean, Mark Pope never got on the field. D. Nope. Wiggins did a little bit. He had his chance, and then he dropped balls. And that Again. was it. Again. So uh, they, they, these guys were already written off long ago. Um, and there's other guys on the roster as well that, that, that they're hoping, were hoping to leave. I'm not going to disclose their names because they're still in the roster. They're still, some of them are even playing. <laughs> but, I, but I know of guys that they wanted to get rid of. And they, and they were hoping would leave because they, they knew that, it was only going to be a problem if they, if they had to see the bench and that's what happened. That's what's happened behind the scenes. Uh, but that's up to Manny, man. He's got to be a man and just tell him, Hey, go away. Right. I mean, yeah, that's and, and it's also, but it's also uh, the players in the locker room. If they are really who they are, if they believe in the culture, they believe in the program, they've got to turn to those guys and say, Hey, pick your head up. We're still working. This is a team. It's not about you. Um, but there's not enough guys to do that. And I think that's the other reason why we're seeing that, the disconnect between coaching and on-field performance, especially when it comes to tackles, is because nobody is doing it the right way and nobody's leading by example. And there's no leader on that team to step up and say, get your head out of your ass. This isn't how we do things. We need to play the right way. Well, it's hard to lead when you're a freshman. It's hard to tell the older guys what to do. Exactly. And and again, as I said on a podcast with you long ago, there's still a lot of guys that lost FIU on this roster. <laughs> okay, <laughs> There's still a lot of them on this roster that lost FIU. All right, why do they continue to start Bubba Bolden? It's clear he can't make any plays. Well, uh, Avante Williams has been out the first six games of the season. That's the honest answer. And as much as you want to play freshman, you can't just throw them out there for 70 snaps because if, you, if they go out there and they struggle, you ruin their confidence. And that's another important part to this all. I mean, you, you've been a coach, Carlos, right? I mean, you have to – give a guy a workload that he can handle. You can't just say, hey, go out there and play 48 minutes on the basketball court. Yeah. Or if you throw him out there in spurts, uh, give him a series here and there and see how he reacts. If he's playing well and he looks like he knows what he's doing out there, you just keep riding him. And you keep injecting him until the point that you say, okay, he's got it. Let's let's roll with him, uh, which is what they've done now with Cam Kitchens and James Williams. And then the, other, the flip side of that is you're going to get these guys to make mistakes, right? They're going to make mistakes because they're young. That's unavoidable. Now, are those mistakes critical? And are they the type of mistakes that ruin them? Like you said, ruin their confidence when they make them. Do they cost the team a victory? 
Um, hopefully they're not. And hopefully the mistakes that, that their play is so good on the backside that the return on the investment, it, it balances out because you're getting something from those guys that you don't get from the older guys, even with the mistakes. So it balances out in, in the positive in terms of the equation. And you saw that with James Williams. I mean, he committed two bad penalties, um, but played well enough that it sort of almost balanced itself out. Yeah, and he's clearly their best tackler, uh, him and him and Cam Kitchens. Uh, you just see the way that they wrap up in the open field. They're, they're, they're fearless as far as putting their shoulder into a guy and wrapping. I know James obviously had a couple bad moments, but there was one where he kind of came in and he tackled how like a heat-sinking missile, and you're just like, wow. Like this, yeah. this, this dude has that it that you need back there. Um, and it's, and he's only going to get better with time. He will. And he's, and he's not shoving, trying to shove guys into tackles while standing behind him like bubble Bolden and then uh, just watching the guy run by him. Right. Worried about their health for the NFL draft. Um, all right. As far as coaching candidates, what do you think of Sonny Dykes and would Lashley be part of the picture as OC if Dykes was hired? Sonny Dykes was from SMU. He's run a really good program down there. Um, I mean, he's been a successful coach at SMU. Uh, he's, he's, he's been a good coach everywhere he's been. I think he was at Louisiana Tech before. Um, had Lashley as his OC. Maybe Lashley stays, maybe not. Lashley's goal, obviously, is to become a head coach, and that's why he came to Miami to begin with, because he thought that would be the springboard to a head coaching position after one to two seasons. Sorry. Sorry we did it to you. Right, You're not going anywhere right now. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it might work out. Um, Sonny Dykes is a successful coach. Can he recruit in South Florida? I mean, he was recruited well in Texas. He's turned around that SMU program, which was a doormat in Dallas. Maybe it works. I don't know, man. I, I really can't tell you, but he's a really good coach. That's all I can say. Um, one guy who I, who I think about and, and look, he hasn't won a ton, but he he's, he's coached at good programs and he's doing a good job recruiting too, is my, is Mike Loxley at Maryland. Um, as somebody that, you know, potentially, I know Dino Babers is another one that people have thrown out there, you know, being at Syracuse, uh, he's in the affordable range. Um, again, I, I don't, I don't know that there is somebody that stands out on the cheap side. Like there, there are guys you can take a, a shot on, right. That are, you know, Billy a lot Napier, of people say Billy Napier, right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, you could look at Bill Clark from UAB, who's a good coach, again, good coach yeah. but to me, you know, Dave Clawson is, is a great example of somebody that I would I would love for them to take a look at because he, he maximizes what he has. He's in he's in an affordable price range, technically. But he's also more. dealing with different kind of kids. Exactly. And, and and that's and that's why, again, I think you think out that outside the box, you, you pay Alonzo more uh, Alonzo morning, Alonzo Highsmith. Bring Alonzo morning too, man. <laughs> You pay Alonzo Highsmith two million a year, and and you hire two really, really, really good offensive and defensive coordinators, and you and you kind of just go from there. Uh, anyway, um, Sonny Dykes isn't a bad coach. I just don't know how good of a fit he is here. How much of the Florida landscape exactly. he understands? Um, all right, this that was from uh, Robert P. Uh, coach Los Los says, say we do get a new coach, what does a trajectory of sustainable growth look like in order for a coach to actually stick around? Benchmarks for years one, two, and three and beyond. Tired of the revolving door. Um, well, I think that first initial season, depending on how this season ends up, like if Manny gets fired at the end of this year and they're five and seven, I think as long as he ends up with a better record that first season than Manny did this past season, I think he's okay in year one. After that, you got to look at, a minimum of nine wins is what the fan base would want at least until you pro progressively grow to 10 to 11 wins a year, which is where they want to be. Right. 
And I think there's a good enough recruiting class here, a good base of 45, you know, recruits from the last two signing classes that you can say that's a foundation to turn things around relatively quickly. It's not like, and you have quarterbacks, right? You have that's quarterbacks thing, yeah. in the roster. Uh, it's not like you got to go out and find those guys. Um, so I would say by year three, he's probably got to be in the ACC championship game. I think one and two, maybe you don't have to be right away, but certainly winning eight, nine, ten games is expected. You gotta you gotta be competitive. You can't be what Manny has been here these last uh, this year and the first year. Um, all right, why is James Williams starting, but Leonard Taylor not even second string? This is from Sam Knowlton on Twitter. I'll say this: the depth charts that the coaches put out means absolute and total bullshit. Right. You have to understand. I haven't gone by it for the last month. Like you have seen different starters out there. You'll see different <clears> starters. <throat> you'll see different playing times. And in the end, um, why is James Williams first team? Because he actually starts. Leonard Taylor doesn't, and he's not going to start. I think you have too many other guys at the defensive tackle position that he has to split reps with. And, you know, in, in a way, too, you got to dangle a carrot, right, for a kid. You got to yeah. kind of, like, starting for him is going to be a big deal. If you just put him in the starting lineup now, uh, you may end up with a situation that you regret later. And, you know, coaches definitely use that. And in the end, he's playing more and more game to game. Um, that's more important, I think, than anything else. All right. Uh, this is from Donovan V. Do you believe our struggles fall more on the players or the coaching? My friends disagree on the topic and present good arguments for both. The coaches can't catch, block, or tackle for the players, but they're either teaching it or allowing it to happen. They also recruited these players, but at what point do players just have to step up and execute? Well, we were talking about it earlier. I mean, at the end of the day, these guys have to want to do it right. And there are certain things, like you said, that the coaches aren't coaching. They're not coaching to do these things wrong. They're not coaching to miss assignments. They're not coaching to go in the wrong gap. They're not coaching to come in there with shoulders and not wrap people up when they tackle. Um, they're not coaching them to line up off sides. They're, they're not coaching them to come in there and target people. Um, and Amari Carr did special. Um, they're, but what they are doing is being slow on the trigger to pull guys out and substitute guys in the, in the, in, in the lineup. They are putting guys in bad positions. Um, they are making some bad decisions in game. Um, and that falls on the coaches. I'd say it's 50-50 right now. I think um, aside from the one thing I mentioned from the North Carolina game about Gervin Hall, I think another thing you saw at the end of the game, one of the things that I noticed that I think was a bad decision was giving Tyler Van Dyke on that last play an RPO really yeah. on the goal line with six seconds left. Yeah. You've got, especially when you have Keyshawn Johnson, Keyshawn Smith split wide left, no safety over the top between him and the corner. Um, throw that ball to the back of the end zone. Let him make a play. See what happens. Worst thing incompletion. You don't, you run an RPO where one, you are play action faking two you're taking the running back away from the protection scheme where he could first jump right into the protection team, give the quarterback more time, and to throw it into the middle of the field where there are more bodies and more potential hazards than throwing it to the back of the end zone and live to play for the field goal. A thousand percent agree with you, Carlos. I don't even need to add anything to it. All right, this one, we're going to wrap up the show with this one. Uh, this one's especially special for me. This is from Alvin C. on my, uh, on my mailbag. What responsibility does the media have in the foolishness that's taking place in Coral Gables? When Manny Diaz was hired, I don't remember reading or seeing any media material questioning the hire. I always see articles about the players and what their resume slash stats say they can or can't do. But not one media member dug into Manny Diaz's football past, even though there was reason to do so. Why? He was suspect as the head coach at UM from day one. Manny Navarro, the next time you are researching stats on the players, 
research these also. How many college football Power 5 national championship winning head coaches did not play college football at some level? Then research how many head coaches that did not play college football went on to be good head coaches in Power 5. Last, research where Manny Diaz played college football. I mean, this was an assignment handed out by Alvin C. No, it was an assignment and a character assassination at the same time. He, he was uh, double dipping there. Right. He was totally killing me for not asking tough questions and not calling out Manny Diaz as a suspect hire, even though I did from day one. Exactly. Um, well, you called him a buffoon last year on a podcast. Two years ago. Two years ago. Sorry. Right. Um, all right. So I did the homework, Carlos. Oh, I, I knew you were going to come out with it. I knew that's why the jack was out. There was something there was something that was taking ticking you off. You wanted to bury somebody. And here it comes. Well. I researched the last 21 national championship teams, 2020 to 2000, right? And now that I research the coach, I researched the athletic director, right? To see who made the hire or who was in charge of the athletic program. So let's start off in 2000. Bob Stoops, 40 years old, when he won the national championship with Oklahoma, played defensive back at Iowa. He was an all Big Ten selection under Hayden Fry. Uh, and defensive coordinator under Bill Snyder and Steve Spurrier. Pretty good track record player. That's one for one. Which, by the way, I mentioned that before in another podcast, but if you could coax that guy out of retirement, I'd take his ass. 2001, Larry Coker, 53 years old out of Oklahoma, played defensive back at Northeastern State. So, yes, we're two for two. Ohio State, 2002, Jim Tressel, 54 years old. Division three quarterback at Baldwin Wallace College. Began coaching at Akron in 1977, was a QB coach at Ohio State in 83, and worked with Mike Tomzak. Player, coach. 2003, Pete Carroll, USC. 52 years old. Played defensive back at the College of Marin, Marin and Pacific. Began coaching at Pacific alongside Greg Robinson, uh, Walt Harris and a bunch of other guys in the early 70s. So player, yes. 2003 LSU, Nick Saban. This is going to save us some time from mentioning Nick Saban again. <laughs> Played DB at Kent State from 1970 to 72. Uh, Carroll won in 2004 at USC. In 2005, Mac Brown. Mac Brown, Vanderbilt, running back, Florida State running back. 1932. 1973 to 77. Began coaching at Florida State. So that is five for five now with head coaches, right? 2006, Urban Meyer, defensive back, Cincinnati, 1982 to 86. Originally drafted to play baseball by the Braves in 1982 and then became a grad assistant under Earl Bruce at Ohio State. Spent 13 years as an assistant at Illinois State, Colorado State, and Notre Dame before he got his first head coaching job. We're now six for six. Les Miles, LSU, 2007, 54 years old. Michigan offensive line uh, lineman under Bo Schembechler became a grad assistant in 1980. What is that? Seven for seven, eight for eight. What are no, we? We're, we're, yeah, we haven't missed one yet. Urban Meyer, 2008. We already went over 2009. Nick Saban, 2010. Gene Chizik Jr. Auburn, 49 years old out of Florida. Listed as a linebacker at Florida in 1981. No evidence. Really? He played at all. It was just a walk on began as a grad assistant at Clemson. Went 5-19 and in two seasons at Iowa State before Auburn hired him. His father was a longtime principal at Largo High School. So I'm going to say he wasn't a college football player because I don't really find any evidence of him playing. But he had Cam Newton. Right. 
The next two years, Nick Saban won. Then we get Jimbo Fisher, 2013 at Florida State, 48 years old out of West Virginia, quarterback at Samford, Division Three National Player of the Year under Terry Bowden. Ooh. Got Urban Meyer in 2014 at Ohio State. Got Nick Saban in 2015. Now we get to Dabo Sweeney, walk-on wide receiver at Alabama, caught seven passes, got his start as a grad assistant under Gene Stallings at Alabama, 47 years old. Dabo Sweeney, walk-on wide receiver. That counts. He caught seven passes yep. in games. Uh, Saban in tw- 2007, Sweeney again in 2008. And then we get to 2019, Ed Orgeron, 58 years old at LSU, defensive lineman at both LSU and Northwestern State. He transferred to Northwestern State from LSU from 1980 to 83. He was playing. So in summary, Carlos, does it take a guy who's played the game to win a championship? Apparently it does. Now, what about the athletic directors? Do you need to play the game to hire the guy? What's your prognosis here? That's a good question. Um, I don't think so. I'm I'm glad you have an opinion. Let's just go through it again. 2000 Oklahoma athletic director, Joe Castiglione. Walk on safety at Maryland, Oklahoma AD since 1998. Originally from Fort Lauderdale, by the way. Look at that. Paul D. The late Paul D, who passed away in 2012, never played sports. He got into a car accident as a kid, but he graduated from Florida in 1970 and began his career at Miami as a lawyer in 1981. He was the athletic director from 1993, I think, until about 2010. Lawyers do it better. So one out of two there. Andy Geiger, the athletic director at Ohio State in 2002, crew team at Syracuse, member of the U.S. squad that won gold at Pan Am Games, coached at Dartmouth. There you go. Athlete slash coach. So two out of the three so far, athlete slash well, well, coach. Well, he wasn't a football player, though. Wasn't a football player, but he coached at Dartmouth, and he was a gold medal winning athlete. Okay. So those are two different questions. You asked me if, if you had, had to play the game also. To be one, out of three, one out of three football, but two out of three athletics. All right. All right. Uh, USC Mike Garrett, Heisman Trophy winner, 1965. Yeah, so that counts. Three out of four and two out of four. Skip Bertman. LSU, 2003, Miami native, played baseball at UM, uh, became assistant under Ron Frazier. Yes, athlete, but not football. So what is that? Four out of five athletes. Two out of five uh, football. Two out of five football. Um, the lost Dodds, the athletic director at Texas, a uh, longtime guy there, track champion at Kansas State, hired in 1981. Um, so... No football, but yes, athlete. So what is that now? Five out of six? Yeah, two out of six on the uh, on the football. All right. Scott Strickland, Florida. Played football and lacrosse at Hobart College in New York. Began working in the Florida ticket office. That is now six out of seven ADs that are and three out of seven football. And three out of seven football. Uh, Bertman is Strickland again the next two years. Mal Moore, Alabama, 2009. Nick Saban played backup quarterback at Alabama for Bear Bryant behind Pat Trammell and some guy named Joe Namath. And he, <laughs> then he coached football for 30 years. Four out of eight for football. Mm-hmm. Seven out of eight. Athletics. All right. Uh, 2010, Jay Jacobs at Auburn. He was a walk-on on the football team at Auburn, lettered on the offensive line, 82-83. Five out of nine. Eight out of nine. All right, Mal Moore again, two next two years. Then Stan Wilcox from Florida State played basketball at Notre Dame, including on a Final Four team in 1978. 
Wow, that's impressive. Five out of ten and nine out of ten. All right. 2014, Gene Smith at Ohio State played defensive end for four years at Notre Dame, including the national championship team in 1973. All right. Six out of 11, 10 out of 11. Bill Battle, athletic director at Alabama in 2015 when Nick Saban won. Battle played at Alabama for legendary coach Paul Bear Bryant from 1960 to 62 and later had careers as a college football coach um, and highly successful licensing executive. Oh. 7 out of 12, 11 out of 12. Uh, Clemson, Dan Radakovich played tight end at IUPUI and punter from 1977 to 80. Served as athletic business manager at Miami from 83 to 85. Oh, look at that. 8 out of 13 and uh, 12 out of 13. Uh, Greg Byrne at Alabama. He replaced Bill Battle. Um, did never, never played sports, was a fundraiser at Oregon before graduating uh, or after graduating from Arizona State. So now we have two out of how many? 12? 14. Two 12 out, out of 14, 14. 12 out of 14 and eight out of 14 on the football side. All right. Radakovich won again in 18. And then LSU, Scott Woodward did not play football prior to working in higher education. He co-owned a government and public relations firm in Baton Rouge. So eight out of 15 and he did not play sports at all? Nope. 12 out of 15. And last but not least, burn again. So that's it. Uh, so in the end, a lot of the guys that were athletic directors at least were athletes. Athletes in some capacity. So they understood competition. That works. Um, but they don't necessarily have to have played football to hire the football coach. There you go. I hope I hope we did a good job with your homework assi- assignment, Alvin C. Did we do it? Did we do a good job there, Carlos? Was that a good I think, job? well, I think you did. You were very thorough. I just sat here and counted. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I have nothing on NC State. I, do you guys really care about NC State? Do we need to discuss that? They should listen to your podcast, right? I mean, uh, you didn't you do one with somebody with NC State? Yeah. Um, well, actually, it's his podcast. It's called the Inside, Inside Pack Sports Podcast. It's going to be coming out later this week. He asked me about the Hurricanes. Uh, it was a two-minute interview where I just told him they suck. They're terrible. We're not winning. And we hung up. No. But no, we, we got into detail. I spoke to him for about an hour about the Hurricanes, about the season, about the upcoming game. He asked me about the team, you know, some of the players, what's been going on, and begrudgingly gave him all the bad answers uh, that we've been seeing over time. Uh, I'm going to do my own podcast. Uh, he asked me if I if he could come on mine, and I might bring him on to do a game preview of NC State. If not, I might just do what I've been doing the last few weeks where I just preview the game myself, tell the, everybody what to watch for, what might happen, what should happen. And uh, I, if I continue to be right, people are going to call me Nostradamus, even though we continue to lose. All right. Well, listen, I, I will encourage people to listen to your podcast, whether you talk about NC State or not. Make sure to check out the MIA All Day podcast with Carlos Ledo, who, of course, I uh, love having him on the show here to talk Canes football with me. I'm just I, I don't see the point in breaking down games anymore for, for Miami. I don't think people care anymore. It's more are they going to win and is the coach going to be the coach? So this was a fun podcast. I'm glad you and I could tackle a lot of these questions. Carlos, thank you for coming on again. But that's going to wrap it up. For tonight's episode, we will be back next week to talk about Miami after Pittsburgh, after NC State and before Pittsburgh. So I, I will be going to Pittsburgh for that game. The same way oh, I was, no. Uh, North Carolina. So I will bring the bad luck on the road with me. Uh, noon kickoff for that one. This Saturday is 730. Uh, what is it? ACC Network? Who's who's televising this? ESPN2. ESPN2. There you go. You can actually watch it, Miami fans. You don't even have yeah. to leave your house. It's not on the Ocho this week. You can actually watch it on ESPN, too. It's on the dose. It's time for me to get to uh, Murders in the Building, the uh, episode. Oh, great show. I have, I'm missing the last episode. 
Yeah, you and I both. I got to go downstairs. My wife, my kids are, are waiting for me to watch it with them. So, Carlos, enjoy the rest of the evening. Listeners, thank you for uh, tuning into this week's uh, Wide Right. We'll be back next week with more shit. Ne- ne- next week's episode is actually going to be Murderers in the Building. That's all we're going to do. We're not going to talk Miami. Y'all know y'all come down that way.